This is Sally Hollingstead, and I'm super excited about today's episode because we took this podcast all the way south to Fort Worth, Texas, where we had the distinct pleasure of speaking with Jennifer Cogburn, who is with Bloomberg NEF. My co-host, Sarah Bartlett, joined me. And what did you think of our episode today? I think that this episode could have lasted hours. Jen, which we now get to call her, is a wealth of knowledge. There are so many pieces to the energy transition puzzle, and it's fascinating to talk with somebody who understands one or a few of them, let alone somebody who really understands so much about that many of them. So she's an insane well of knowledge. And she had some very refreshing points of view that were a little different and really got me thinking a little bit differently about a few of these issues. The thing that I found super cool also was that she made a comment, and I can't remember if we were recording or not, but she made a comment about how Bloomberg is her side hustle because she actually is an owner and operator and founder of uh, Sacred Waters, which is a cool healing spa facility that she works on both in New York and in Colorado. That made a lot of sense to me because as you start to listen to this episode, you'll kind of hear this calm demeanor that comes through in, in Jen when she talks. And I think it's just indicative of her being truly authentic, not only in her personal life, but also in her professional life. And I think that's what you'll hear a lot of today. I will put out the disclaimer that all thoughts that Jen shares with us today are purely of her own thinking. They are not reflective of Bloomberg NEF. My name is Cara Byrne and I'm the 2022 Global President of the Women's Energy Network, aka WEN. WEN is focused on developing a community of energy professionals across the world who are connected locally and networked globally. This podcast is yet another way for WEN to feature our talented members in the energy community. I hope you can learn something new and enjoy your time with us today. Today we have Jen Cogburn. Jen heads Bloomberg NEF's American Gas Research Team, which provides insight into the short and medium-term dynamics of natural gas, including its global competitiveness. This team's research includes regional supply and demand balances, EIA storage inventory outlooks, production costs and trends, gas industry emissions, global LNG markets, and renewable natural gas. Previously, Jen worked in the commodities industry for Incana, Sempra, Societe Generale, and Freepoint Commodities, among others. She has also worked in financial consulting, investment banking, and is a licensed attorney in New York State. She holds a JD and a bachelor's degree in statistics from the University of Denver. She's also a Colorado native, which I was thrilled to learn about today as we started interviewing her. So, Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. Let's start off with you just talking about growing up in Colorado and how you got yourself to New York. So I, um, for most of my career, was working in the commodities industry. I started out in Colorado, as you mentioned, at a production company and worked in the financial risk management group or the fundamentals team, we called it. And from there, I knew that I wanted to go into trading. So I moved to New York and worked at a bunch of different places in trading, um, eventually investment banking. We did some M&A deals, things like that. And at some point I decided that I wanted to leave the industry and I did. And I started a separate business called Sacred Waters, which is a healing center located in both New York and Colorado. And then 
um, one of my former colleagues from Societe Generale contacted me and, and asked me to come work at Bloomberg. And at first I said, definitely, absolutely not. But it ends up, it ended up that they had some of the models that I had worked on at Societe Generale had eventually made its way to Bloomberg. And so they asked me to come and help work on those again. I did say yes, thankfully, which helped me a lot actually during the pandemic as a business owner. So it was divine timing maybe. And I was excited to go back to to the commodity space, specifically at Bloomberg NEF, because the vision of BNF is to support the energy transition and transition the world more quickly in a way that helps our clients find opportunities and benefits of doing so. And so I saw it as using my skills and knowledge, whereas before I was working typically making money for a hedge fund owner or basically a rich man in most cases. And at BNF, 100% of the company's profits go to charity now. So all the work that I do actually supports um, more charity in the world. So I enjoy looking at markets again, but in this new company. Well, first of all, that's awesome. I did not know about the charity aspect of that. Will you, just for our listeners' sake and my sake too, what does the NEF stand for? It stands for New Energy Finance. It was a separate company that was purchased by Bloomberg. I actually don't know the year, but more than 10 years ago and is has very slowly become integrated into the Bloomberg system, but it stands as one of the research arms in Bloomberg. There's another research arm called Bloomberg Intelligence, which looks at the equity markets from a research perspective, and BNF um, does primary research. So, you know, looking at, again, what's changing in the energy transition. Speaking of the energy transition, there's so much talk about transition lately, and I heard you talk about all this transitions as an existential crisis for our industry. Can you share this concept and more about this concept with our listeners? I first um, thought of this idea or presented it this way at a conference about a year ago because I realized that clients were asking me these existential type questions. Will we have meaning in 10 years? And what will our value be? Is the industry going to go away? And having um, you know, negative thoughts or anxiety about the answers to those questions. One of the fundamental principles of existential crisis is contemplation of death and having dread about it. And I saw that in some parts of the industry. In other parts of the industry, I saw companies seeing it like an opportunity. Oh, what can we, what new things can we do and how can we change and where can we make money in new ways? So it was really two, there are two maybe different groups, but a lot of people have fear and anxiety about the energy transition. And we even talk about uh, some of our sales team as energy transition therapists because they've been having these conversations with the oil and gas industry for quite a while. And the point that I like to make about it, though, when everybody sees, I put on the screen the definition of an existential crisis, and it's funny but also obvious that these questions are being asked by the oil and gas industry in relation to the transition that we have to make if we're going to keep the planetary warming to a reasonable amount that we are able to adapt to. So the point that I like to make about it is that an existentialist will tell you that an existential crisis is, some of them will say it's a good thing. And 
definitely they'll describe it as something not to worry about, that it's a process that someone goes through when they start to consider these things, which will lead them on the other side to a new paradigm. And I think that's where we are as an industry, that we do have to go through this process of contemplating our value, our purpose, our meaning, and how to get ourselves into a new paradigm. I giggled when I saw your definition and I really relate to it. I liked the idea of, you know, there's some that have an opportunity and some see it as a dread. And that makes it so relatable when you talk to people about their job, what they're doing. You talk to people about where the industry is going. You see a lot of both. And I think it's a fascinating perspective. I also like to use the example of the Chinese character for crisis when I talk about this, because the character is actually two characters combined for that word. One is the character for danger. One is the character for opportunity. So the point is both of them exist in any crisis. And uh, it's what you do about those things existing that makes the difference. And I often recommend to clients to find places where you can see the change as an opportunity. What can I do to turn this into an opportunity instead of a danger? And when you do that, when you move into the space of what can I do, it unlocks creativity. And this happens on an individual level, but also on a company level. If you're in the camp of there's a danger, it reduces uh, creativity and you start to put in place protections. If you approach the question from the opportunity side, then there's all kinds of things that come out, new potentials. Um, anytime that a person or a company sees themselves as only having two options, that's a dilemma. And dilemmas specifically limit creativity. So the first step is just to say, if you're in a if if a company or a person is in a position of thinking I have this option or that option, transition or die, for example, then you can <clears throat> just stop. Notice there's only two options. Notice you're in a dilemma and just consider any other third option. Maybe a third option in this case would be, oh, maybe I can keep producing fossil fuels, but find a way to get my emissions to zero or my methane intensity to zero or be the best in my peer group on the carbon emission intensities that I have or invest, you know, the best in my peer group into some core aligned technology like biofuels if you're a refiner, for example. And in that space of having now a third option, you'll it will automatically unlock creativity. People immediately think of a fourth option and a fifth option and a sixth option. There is typically almost an unlimited number of options and we get very stuck when we think there are only two. And I think that is one way to think about responding to the crisis or shifting the way a company may be responding to the crisis. And when we talk about the you know global climate crisis, there's so much we're doing to change. And there's all these talk about targets and net zero by 2050. And one of the things they hear a lot about is this 1.5 degree model. I heard you talk about recently the 1.75 degree model. So I'm curious the shift and what's the difference and why did that come about? For the last 20 years or more, maybe since the 90s, when you hear people talk about climate, they are usually talking about limiting planetary warming to 1.5 degrees. And that is the scenario that the Paris Agreement is based on because at 1.5 degrees, there is significant biological consequences, but they are, they are things that we can adapt our society to. So some of the consequences at 1.5 degrees are 70 to 90% of the coral reefs will die. 
it will create around a foot and a half of ocean rise. We will have a significantly larger geographical area that deals with droughts. The droughts will be hotter and longer. And at the same time, in other parts of the world, we will have significantly more flooding, um, at least 50% increase in flooding globally. That's all happening if we limit warming to 1.5 degrees, which is why that's the target. Past that, there are other scenarios, two degrees you hear about, 1.75 degrees, as you mentioned, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. Those other scenarios, it's less known what the consequences will be, but at some point past two degrees, we reach a point that we won't be able to adapt as a species to what happens on our planet and, and deal with those biological consequences. So a lot of people are pretty alarmed. The IPCC just released another report, which they haven't released in many years, um, looking at this. And basically, most people are resigned to the fact that 1.5 degrees is effectively impossible unless we make changes right now that are very unlikely to make a, a tremendous amount of investment, a tremendous amount of cutting emissions. We released um, a pathway through 2030 that would be required to limit warming to 1.75 degrees because it's still a big jump, but theoretically possible. And in those eight years, we focus on the power sector as the easiest pathway to reduce the emissions. It would be required to reduce emissions by 30% in, those, in that time frame in order to keep us on track to have a chance at limiting warming to 1.75 degrees. The power sector has currently available technologies like wind and solar and batteries that we can create that change. It's possible. Now, it would take around $2 trillion a year of investment from 2022 through 2025 in order to get there, which is around three times the amount we spent in 2021. So still a significant amount of investment required right now. Um, to even keep us on track for 1.75 degrees. So it sounds like 1.75 is the more realistic, a very achievable model. And hopefully it gets people back into that creative brain you were talking about. And it's not, we're inevitably headed for failure, but what can we do and how can we really get there? Yeah, I think the goalposts have moved. And um, it's sad because we had time to change earlier, but we didn't. And here we are. And I think focusing on what we need to do now or what we can do now is important. And it takes, there isn't one answer. It's take, going to take systemic change pretty much from everybody in some way to get on that uh, good path. You know, Sarah already mentioned that we we heard you talk earlier. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned was demethanization. We're very familiar with decarbonization, but could you please explain what demethanization is to our audience? In the gas team at BNF, there is an analyst named Nakul Nair, and he's the first person that I saw write about this. Uh, he kind of coined the term demethanization for use in this way because he talked about how decarbonization is a word that we use all the time. Everybody knows what it means. We have a system in place to measure the carbon emissions of of our flights, of our cars, of our products. And methane as a greenhouse gas has a much larger short-term impact on planetary warming. So for the first 10 years, if you take carbon dioxide versus methane, 
methane has an 80 times greater impact on warming than the carbon dioxide does, but the carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere longer. So when you get to like a hundred year um, timeline for impact, then the carbon dioxide uh, becomes greater. So they're just very different profiles. And in the conversation, again, that we've had for the last 20 or 30 years, the focus was on uh, decarbonization. And we're trying to bring focus to demethanization because it's a short term kind of easy win that we could do to limit um, significantly planetary warming. And then also from the U.S. market perspective, we're in a very good position because we have quite a bit of regulation around methane. We can see the methane emissions with satellites well in the U.S. and other parts of the world, say like in Russia, for example, you can't sometimes because of snow cover or if it's near water, it's hard for the satellites to pick it up. But ours is has a good view. Satellites have a good view. Because of that, we think if the industry would spend a little bit of money, there's a lot of reports from other parties out on pathways to doing this, what investment it would take, the kinds of equipment needed, um, analysis on how much it would cost the industry. It's doable. It's cheap for the most part. It's very low-hanging fruit. And part of it is to measure and monitor the emissions because right now most companies estimate them. The EPA also estimates them based on the equipment that you have um, in your in your company operations. So if we start to measure and monitor them and get methane emissions, let's say to zero or very low intensities in production and transport, then we have this low emission fuel source that can help the rest of the world reduce emissions, say for example, from coal. We can cut out coal from the stack now, use low methane gas, Emissions will be reduced. The U.S. Um, oil and gas market is supported. It's a win politically. It's a win um, on the global political stage because, as you saw, the U U.S. and EU just announced a partnership to send more LNG to Europe um, to reduce their reliance on Russia. So there's a lot of good that can come, for example, in demethanization in the U.S. industry. And we think, um, we hope, that the industry really sees that as an easy opportunity from talking about what we said earlier, that it's not a threat, it's not a danger to have more methane regulation. And in fact, you can just get ahead of it. You don't need any more methane regulation. Just move your operations to measuring methane, limiting methane. You're going to potentially unlock premiums in the market for low methane gas. It's, it's really kind of a no-brainer and something that we can do that makes a big short-term impact. So it's really that methane is such a unique piece of this puzzle that can we really talk about it because it's a it's not the only piece in the puzzle, but it's a very important one. Yeah. In the when we're talking about the 2030 time frame um, and how much we have to do by then, this, in my view, is maybe the most low hanging fruit to make a big difference. And there really isn't a threat to anybody in, in that pathway. And just so that I'm clear. Cows are the ones that really produce the methane, right? <laughs> One of my favorite facts is that everybody's like, oh, it's cow farts. I'm like, actually, it's, it's cow, cow burps. burps. I know. <laughs> Stephanie enlightened me to this the other day. <laughs> yes and no. So the th that's an interesting um, 
comment because we can we also can use cow burps and farts and also methane emissions from landfills to create a negative emissions product called renewable natural gas. What I was talking about actually isn't just the typical traditional production of natural gas where we drill out of the ground and put it into pipelines and then send it to Texas and put it on a ship and send it send it around the world. There are places along that pathway when it comes out of the ground, when it's getting put on the pipe, when they're putting the drill pad in place, um, when they're hooking it up to the system, where there are either vents that or leaks where the the product just literally leaks into the air and it's hard to detect. You can't see it. So there's a lot of leaks that go unnoticed. And then there are also vents that happen under permit. They're allowed to vent that gas. And then there is flaring. So for example, in the Permian basin, the oil production is the more valuable product that they're drilling for. And there is byproduct methane or natural gas that they don't pay or don't have the infrastructure set up to process it and put that into the grid. So they burn it at the top of a big pipe at the top of a stack. So you see these, you know, giant look candle looking things, um, in the Permian basin, and that's methane that they're burning, burning. It reduces its emissions somewhat. It changes it into more of a carbon dioxide profile, but it's better for the environment than venting it. And then if you follow that back to leaks, leaks are also very bad because they're not burning those. They're just straight methane. So just making that system more efficient, making sure we capture everything that we can and it's not vented or leaked or flared would reduce the emissions profile of the industry significantly and help a lot with short-term warming. The cow farts, um, you can create, they are creating now renewable natural gas um, facilities where you capture those burps and farts, or maybe you capture kind of the methane leaking from the top of a landfill, put it through what's called a digester. So just a bit of processing, and then it can also be put into the natural gas stream that removes emissions that would happen anyway. Um, other than the cost of digesting it, you can get it for free and then sell it into the market. We are seeing significant premiums for RNG because they can access renewable credits, particularly in the California transportation market. So natural gas vehicles right now run basically on RNG. And it's a little bit complicated because um, even though they might not take the exact molecule from an RNG facility and put it into their car, they are buying the RNG, which goes into the system, and then they fill their car with natural gas in a different location. So it's a bit of a virtual swap, but they're paying premiums for that RNG to be produced because they get credits uh, for it. So the value of RNG from a gas per MMBTU basis is something around like $15 to $20 so they're large premiums. The returns on RNG projects right now are uh, huge. It's a very nascent industry. It's a very small percentage of the market, but we think by 2040, with current policies in place, it could reach up to 12% of blending into the U.S. natural gas market. And there's definitely room for ways to unlock other premiums, for example, Without those credits, we do also see premiums just in the domestic market of like three to five, maybe up to 10 cents per MMBTU because utilities and their net zero targets also want to be buying this negative emission gas. 
And we think that RSG, which is what, what we're calling um, the traditionally produced low methane gas, RSG stands for responsibly sourced gas, also has a little bit of a premium in the market. And we um, foresee that LNG cargoes that can be certified as RSG will see premiums in the European market too. So far, we've talked a lot about decarbonization, demethanization, and the importance of all the things and all the pieces, and that it's a very complex puzzle. In what way can I as an individual or one of our listeners as an individual do my part in assisting in meeting the global climate targets? I answered this question a little bit differently than most other people I've heard answer the question because the idea that individuals are going to be able to make a difference isn't accurate from the perspective of the way they change their emissions. <laughs> now, collectively, individuals can make a difference, but that's an important distinction. And so if you, from a water perspective, for example, if you take a shorter shower, it's not going to help the water problem at all. It will help maybe your relationship with the problem and the things that you talk about with other people. But it's larger emitters or larger problem makers who need to change, which is typically at a bigger, um, from a bigger perspective. And what individuals I think can do to make a difference is do what they can to change that level. I'm not saying don't um, change at individual level, do whatever your heart tells you to, whatever you can, you can find things that make sense to you and do them. And also it's required that we collectively talk to the people who have the power and the money and the ability to make systemic change and have them make it. So groups of investors, for example, and shareholder activism is changing things. We saw it change the board of Exxon, for example. Um, there are other things that we can do collectively, but kind of sitting at home and thinking, oh, I can do this thing that's going to make a difference is nice, but not actually that useful to make the kind of change that we need. So my recommendation is to find a louder voice in whatever way you can within your company, maybe, or within your community and have uncomfortable conversations, particularly with people in those positions who have the ability to change systems. Those little changes, it's not like they're not important, but I like that reference to it's, I'm changing my relationship with the problem and with the solutions. And it's, opening the door for that creativity. So I can have some voices and let's say when, if I am in a company, so a leadership and you're talking to leadership of a company, what can a company do to do their part of this puzzle? I want to say first that maybe what I said about the individual can relate to how a lot of people feel helpless, that they know their small little change isn't going to make a big enough difference. So what can I do? And um, interestingly, it's a bit like the existential crisis where there are these moments of what can I do to make a difference? How can I have value in this conversation? And they are difficult answers, I think. So the example you gave of someone in a company, if you're in leadership in a company, then in my view, you have a responsibility to be doing something. But if you're not in a position of leadership, then something you can do is go to those people in a position of leadership and talk to them. But that might be, it might be like, how can I do that? This is uncomfortable. I might lose my job. Uh, what are they going to think of me? Is it going to hurt my ability to get a promotion? Things like that. So it's not easy to navigate this, but what I do about it is I find 
someone more senior who responds to things I say at least with respect or interest. So if they blow me off, I don't try that anymore. That's a path that's not open. Find somebody who listens first. And then I ask them, can you have this conversation with somebody else? Or can you introduce me to somebody else I can have this conversation with? And basically I just chart a path each step of the way to move towards where is the person that can make a difference about this? And are you willing to talk to me for 10 minutes? Because it's important to me. And maybe they aren't. And that again is a very difficult thing to do. I also have found in my experience that it's very rewarding. And sometimes you get a no, and sometimes you get a yes, sometimes you get a promotion for that. So the outcome isn't really the important thing. The process, I think, is what's important. And so especially within a company, finding ways that you can discuss the narrative or change the narrative or make suggestions at least is the thing that we can do. I think sometimes you get a no, sometimes you get a yes, sometimes you get a promotion is like a motto to live by. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. Yeah. And I guess the same thing applies at the company level, which was the question. Among peers, as in our in my role, like I mentioned, we have clients saying like, what is our value? What are we going to do? They're all asking us what the other tr- peers are doing. What are our peers saying about transition? Where are they investing? Everybody wants to know that. So it's like they aren't, I think, the picture I have anyway is that they aren't necessarily, maybe now they are, but for a period they weren't talking to each other about it. They were scared to talk to each other about it, but they talked about it with us because that was safe. And the same thing now in peer groups where one company is saying, hey, I see this as an opportunity. This is what we can do. We need a partner in this kind of digitalization strategy or this kind of decarbonization strategy. Then it grows collectively that way as well. One of the things that we we've talked about on here and that is so much a part of the conversation is how investing is becoming such a big part of making progress on climate change. So we talked before we hit record on this idea that companies struggle to lean into, you know, how can I narrow in on what my actual emissions are? How can I really understand how I can make a big difference in my own because of risk? So can you talk about some of the risk companies are perceiving and how to maybe lean into or move beyond that risk? So you hear this narrative in the oil and gas industry about net zero aspirations being in conflict with economic returns. I think in some corners that's probably true, but I don't actually think it's as big of a conflict as it seems or as we think it is. And having, especially on one hand, you see environmental activism growing, shareholder activism growing. Most people saying they want you to care about ESG and they want you to do right um, for the environment. And then this idea that the companies have where the priority, because it has been for as long as we can remember, is to make money, that I think having conversations with those shareholders would be a surprising potential outcome, that they are willing to give up a little bit of profit in order to have this transition happen. And in some cases, maybe even a lot of profit. So I think that's one thing to investigate about how maybe it's different than we think. And then another issue or conflict that I see from the methane side, for example, is that right now methane emissions are estimated, like we talked about. The EPA estimates them based on your equipment, and sometimes they are reported that way. There is some fear in the industry that if I start counting and calculating my methane emissions, if it's higher than what I have been estimating, and now with pressure from the SEC that these metrics are financially material, 
means there's liability for misreporting them. That if I find out I'm misreporting and then I say that, am I going to get in trouble for saying that? I don't know the answer, but I think the SEC hasn't put in place these measures yet. And there is conversation to be had about, hey, this is the way we've been doing it because the EPA wanted us to do it this way. Now we found out this new information. We're going to start reporting measured emissions now. The fear about the implications of that, I think, is greater than the real problem. And there's probably a way to figure that out. Maybe the first year that you do it is resetting your baseline. And now if you're, if you're misreporting, then it's material. That conversation is being had now, but I think the switch in thinking might just be that these conflicts aren't as big as we think, and we can find a way where the answer is a good one. Sometimes the U.S. is seen as a laggard behind Europe when it comes to a lot of these climate issues and leading the way. In what ways can you see the U.S. as a whole stepping into more of a leadership role in addressing our climate goals? I see, this is just anecdotal from my observations, that the in the ESG space, typically the U.S. is around three to four years behind Europe. So what we're saying now about our targets and our rates and our blending and what we're doing is what the EU generally or Europe was saying three to four years ago. And what they're saying now is at least a picture of the direction of our travel uh, so far anyway in energy transition talk or ESG um, metrics. I think the demethanization story that we talked about, again, is a win-win-win and an easy one where the U.S. could be a leader in low methane intensity gas, which can reduce the use of coal globally and lower emissions globally, um, also supporting our industry and giving them more time to do more about transitioning other sectors of the energy system. And there are two other places where right now the U.S. could be emerging as a leader. One is in energy storage. So we're currently the global leader in capacity of energy storage. And if we implement new policies like the production tax credits that were proposed in the Build Back Better bill, then we will probably retain that leadership status. If we don't, then it's likely China will it overtake us from a cap capacity perspective around 2025 because they're rapidly building out energy storage to meet their targets. We see in the U.S. market that large um, battery projects, when combined with solar, are competing with thermal power plants um, from a cost perspective. So there's room for us to build these in an economic way. We also are a leader currently in hydrogen. So we have invested um, a significant amount of hydrogen as part of the infrastructure bill, and we could emerge as a hydrogen leader. There are other countries, there are lots of countries, honestly, spending money on hydrogen research now. And the electrolyzers are being made uh, mostly in China, but the costs will decline just from the demand increase because those manufacturing facilities aren't operating at 100% capacity. So right now they're building a few electrolyzers, but they could in the same facilities be building many more electrolyzers just by increasing the orders. The cost will decline um, rapidly because of the efficiency of those manufacturing facilities. So we know costs are coming down as long as we're building them. And we think they could come down significantly enough in the US to really compete. We saw, again, a 
provision, the production tax credit that was in the Build Back Better Act as applied to hydrogen, would have moved clean hydrogen production to par with fossil-based hydrogen production from a cost perspective immediately. So we could have replaced all the hydrogen production in the U.S. with clean hydrogen production relatively easily. And then the question of entering the fuel-based market, so competing with things like natural gas, is kind of a second phase. There is room in the Midwest, in the U.S., for there to be kind of a large hydrogen market there because of the supply and demand picture. It would require investment into infrastructure. So the one thing that the U.S. needs to do is figure out how it's going to support hydrogen infrastructure investment. And then again, it has potentially the positioning to be a leader on that front. You talked about Bloomberg NEF being your side hustle and that your passion is truly the sacred waters uh, organization that you created. And so my thought, as I'm looking at your website, then I went to social media and I was paying attention, but I wanted to (laughs) know like what this was. And I think one of the things we like to do with this podcast is really leave our listeners with some really cool tips or leader, you know, leadership insight, et cetera. But one of the things that I love on your website says helping people live as their most authentic self. So as we roll out of this uh, interview where you've given us lots of information, I just want that personal piece from you to say like, what should our listeners do or what's one tip that you can give them where they can really truly live their authentic self? Thanks for bringing that up. That's, uh, I guess our motto in some ways of sacred waters is that everything we do which is a lot of different stuff, is founded on, at the heart of it, supporting people in being their authentic self. And most people don't even know what that is, actually. And our self is made up, um, or the way we express ourselves, maybe, is made up of the influences from our family, our religion, our church, relative to this conversation, our company and our company stance on things, our peers, our friends. There is a lot of pressure from a lot of places to be the way they expect you to be. And the mission of Sacred Waters is to help people first find out the way they actually want to express themselves and also expressing the things that they want to about themselves. So that process, especially in those kinds of spaces, is so rewarding if what you're really saying in a meeting or to your coworker or to your client isn't what you want to be saying, that's a certain kind of stress that leads to a lot of things. It's very subtle, but depression, all all kinds of stuff that isn't fulfillment of life, right? So wherever you are, if you can authentically express who you really are on the inside, then that leads to a lot of joy and a lot of beautiful relationship with the life that you have. In the energy conversation, I think part of why we see people leaving the industry is about that, that they aren't aligned necessarily with their company's vision of who they're supposed to be. And so instead of going through the difficulty of working that out internally with the organization, they're saying, I want to do something else. That's okay. And that's important too. But there's another option where you can learn to express yourself authentically within your organization on the topics that matter. And in some ways, that piece is more impactful than leaving. And I talk about that because I lead in BNF, the gas research team. And I say all the time, our team is different because BNF is very clean energy focused in its history. It was started as a carbon trading firm. And 
the industry that we talk to is obviously very fossil focused. So I tell people when they're interviewing for our team, look, you have to understand that you have one foot in a clean energy company and one foot in the oil and gas industry, because those are our clients that we are meant to support and help to them. And I used to be a trader now, right? So I'm like, to them, I'm the black sheep because now I'm at a clean energy company. And to the clean energy company, I'm the black sheep because I'm supporting oil and gas. And But that balance is really interesting and in a way can make way more impact. If I can support the oil and gas industry in transitioning, that's a larger impact on the world than getting people to, whatever, divest. Because the when people divest from energy company, somebody else is buying it, right? And sometimes those actors are worse actors than the ones who are divesting because they actually have now obviously an interest in ESG. That's why they're doing it. If instead they can stay connected, keep the relationship and support change, that's where the impact is. And that's similar to a person's individual journey, maybe, of instead of going to a safer space, can you stay in your space, your family, your job, your whatever, and still learn to express yourself authentically? Because that is where it's at. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time. Until then, be safe and power on.